Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. Whether you are in the room live, watching live online, later on demand, or listening to our podcast, we've been praying for you to experience the life-changing power of God in your life today. I'm Chris Voigt, and I lead the team here at Dayspring. That team is made up of people committed to helping you grow. People grow here because our team loves to challenge, encourage, and equip people to become more like Jesus. If this is your first time visiting Dayspring, we want you to know that this is the kind of church where you get to be you. We're just like you, imperfect people on a journey. We're allowing Jesus to make something beautiful out of our broken and often messy lives, learning to live like Him, a little more today than yesterday, a little more tomorrow than today. Even if you aren't sure that you're ready to be on that journey with us, maybe you are skeptical about the claims of Jesus or skeptical of His followers. Well, this is still a great place, a safe place to explore and ask questions as you look for answers. We're asking those same questions and looking for answers too, so I think we can be pretty good company on your journey. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church, by checking out our Facebook page, or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your home church, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find a discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. And now, let's join our service. Welcome to week four of Parenting, Winning the Battle for Your Child's Heart. We live in a world that is dead set against the values that we believe in. That has never been more obvious than it is right now. Hollywood masterfully makes sin look glamorous, even virtuous. Silicon Valley is undermining the way our kids see themselves as it paints a false reality 30 seconds at a time, after time, after time. And though our schools here in Salem and Kaiser are filled with some really fantastic teachers, our nation's Department of Education dictates uh, what our schools must allow and teach as it seeks to indoctrinate our children with lies. And our state governments are more and more trying to limit the influence and authority of parents over their children, which makes parenting in the 21st century very complicated. Uh, parents are on the front lines of a spiritual battle for their kids. That has always been true, of course, but in our current culture, the battle is raging on many fronts. I know it's a bit of a downer to start a sermon this way. Sorry about that. But we have to know where we stand if we're going to win the battle for our kids' hearts. We have to have a strategy to win. And as we've been discovering, that strategy is to parent for the relationship. We want a healthy, long-term relationship with our kids. A relationship that allows us to influence, allows us influence in their lives for their entire lives. Our kids are going to make lots of short-term decisions that we don't love. Just as we made lots of short-term decisions that our parents didn't love. And as parents, you hope that none of those short-term decisions come with long-term consequences. But sometimes they do. But whether they do or don't, we are parenting for the relationship for life. We are the ones who have to keep our eyes on the goal. 
especially when we're in the midst of those short-term battles. Keeping our eyes on the goal will give us wisdom to know which short-term battles are hills to die on and which we have to let go of. I remember a season in Lexi's dating days when she was dating someone that we weren't all that excited about. There were several of those along the way. But this, this particular boy came from Dysfunction Junction. His mom was certifiably crazy. Our preference would have been that she just broke up with him. Her preference was that we would let her date whoever she wanted. So we treated him with respect, tried to love him as best we could in spite of our misgivings, and whenever she would complain about his mother, we'd just say, is that who you want to be the grandmother of your children? Eventually, she decided that his crazy mother wasn't what she wanted. See, we were, we were playing a long game by losing the short game smartly. We didn't just give up the short game. We just played it wisely by giving her a glimpse of the possible long-term consequences. Interestingly enough, that boy came to Christ after he graduated and eventually found his way to my office where he thanked me for the way we modeled Jesus to him. I'm still thankful that they're not together, though. <laughs> Playing the long game doesn't mean that you just give up those short-term battles. It just means that you have to put wisdom into overdrive. That's how you parent for a lifelong relationship of influence. Now, when it comes to parenting, it isn't all bad news. There is good news, too. Uh, first, we have truth on our side. Truth never needs to fear being questioned. The light never needs to be afraid of the dark because it chases away the dark. Truth does a pretty good job of exposing the lies when given the opportunity. We also serve the God of hope who is always working in our kids' lives even when we can't see what he's doing. He is always calling them into relationship with himself. He loves them more than we ever could. And in Jesus has already gone to great lengths for their heart. We can trust him with our kids. He won't stop now. And we also have love on our side. Not the shallow imitation of love that our world is peddling, but biblical love. Biblical love is the most powerful tool in our tool chest. Biblical love literally changed the world in the first century. The best place for your kids to see biblical love in action is in your home. And in specifically, for our purposes today, in your marriage. Now, as I say that, I recognize that family life has gotten incredibly complex in our society. Even in this room, we have single parents, married parents, divorced parents, and blended family parents. Even a few grandparent parents. Uh, even, even though I have first-hand experience with uh, everything but the grandparent parenting, there's really no way that I could do justice in one message to all of those scenarios. But I'm still not one to shy away from the tension between what is real and what is ideal. What is real is varied and impermanent family structures sometimes because of death, sometimes divorce, or any other number of reasons. What's real is that many kids are being raised in fractured or unhealthy family scenarios. Like it or not, 
our marriages or whatever scenario is real in your home impacts our kids. Just as our parents' marriages impacted us. Regardless of what's real, I think most of us in this room and watching online agree that on what's ideal. What's ideal is what most of us dream about growing up, especially women. Boys don't generally think of it as early as girls do, but that doesn't change the eventual dream. Even divorced parents want successful marriages for their kids. Single moms generally want their kids to end up in two-parent homes as well. So for today, we're going to walk the tension between real and ideal, which is one dad and one mom in a monogamous, healthy covenant marriage. If that isn't you, I want you to know that you'll never hear judgment from me, only compassion and encouragement to work toward the best ideal you can get in your real. All that to say, if you need some advice with the specific application of principles that we talk about today, let Michelle or I know. We both grew up in real, not ideal. And we turned out pretty okay, if you ask me. So I think our experience might be helpful. Okay, back to, to the love that changes lives. As parents, we want to model biblical love for our kids. They won't get a clearer picture anywhere else. They are a captive audience for 18 years or so. For 18 years, dads are teaching their sons, whether they know it or not, how to treat their wives and how to treat how their daughters should be treated by their husbands. And moms are doing the same. Ideally, it matches up with the teachings of Jesus. He gave us the best picture of what biblical love looks like. He, he models it for the disciples on the last night. On the last night that he spent with him. It was Passover and Jesus had gathered his, his 12 disciples for one final meal together. Although they didn't know it, of course. And before dinner, he took off his outer robe and wrapped a towel around his waist and began to wash the feet of his disciples one by one, including the disciple who would betray him in just a few short hours. And when he was done, he told them to lead the same way, by serving in humility. And then after dinner, they, he gave them this final command. He said, now I'm, I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Now we talk about this a lot, so I'm not going to camp out here for long. Uh, love each other as I have loved you. What he meant would only become clear to them retrospectively. Love as I have loved you sacrificially. Now, all of this was revolutionary to their, way, to their way of thinking. And in the years that followed, as the, as the church they founded grew, people needed a help understanding what biblical love looks like in this situation and that situation. It looks good on paper, but living it out is harder than it looks. So along comes the Apostle Paul, unpacking it practically for the early church. And when we get to the book of Ephesians, we get the best picture of what biblical Jesus kind of love looks like in marriage. 
Now here's what he has to say from Ephesians chapter 5 beginning in verse 21. He writes, And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, okay. And further means that he is continuing his train of thought. He's been unpacking what it means to live out this Jesus kind of love practically. Living as light in a dark world, whether you are married or not. And further, everyone is called to submit to everyone. For those of you who are married, you are also called to submit to one another. Which is where some of us are going to get stuck. For centuries, this word has been shamefully used as a weapon in marriage by Christians and non-Christians alike. As specifically in the next verse where he writes, For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. We have talked about this passage in more depth in both our Ephesians series last fall and in our What Happy Couples Know series earlier this year. So I'm just going to give a quick overview. If this is a subject you'd like to understand better, check out the specific messages in those series on our website. Jesus modeled what it means to submit. As an equal with God the Father, he chose to submit to God's plan for the redemption of mankind, which included giving up his own life on the cross. In the Gospel of Matthew, he taught what he modeled as he washed his disciples' feet on that last night. That the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. As we talked about in our What Happy Couples Know series, submission is a race to the back of the line. To submit means to use all of your authority, your power, your resources, and your time for the benefit of another person. And verse 21 instructs the entire body of Christ to use all of our authority, power, resources, and time for the benefit of each other. Men submit to women, women submit to men, women to women, men to men. We're all in a race to the back of the line for Jesus' sake. Not because anyone might deserve it or have earned your respect enough to submit, but submit because of Jesus. And then, in the specific context of marriage, Paul adds a reminder to women. But before we get to that, let's pull back the curtain and take a gander at the first century culture. In the early church, it was pretty common for the women in the church to be spiritually single. That is, they believed in Jesus, but their husbands didn't. And they would come to church and learn about the equality of men and women, and then go home to a situation where they were considered property. So even then, wives were called to submit to their husband. For Jesus' sake, who is, as we see in verse 23, the head of his wife. Now, what does Paul mean here? What does head mean? In English, we use the term head to describe the person in charge. 
The head coach is in charge of the team. The head chef is in charge of the kitchen. We use it so commonly in English that we think it seems obvious that Paul uh, means that the husband is in charge of the wife. He is the authority figure in a hierarchical structure. He is at the top and everyone answers to him. But to say that someone is the head of something is actually a metaphor. And a metaphor that is used in one culture doesn't necessarily mean the same thing in another. And this was true in the Greek language. Using the term head to mean the person in charge was unknown in classical Greek. That's just not what it meant. However, Paul would have been aware of the very few instances in the Greek Old Testament where the word head could have possibly been a figure of speech for the leading or most prominent person like we think of it. In Greek, the word was kephale. And kephale could mean the person in charge. But in Greek, and Paul was writing in Greek to a Greek body of believers in Turkey. In Greek, if a writer used the term kephale in relation to the body, they would be more likely indicating something like the source of life. And nourishment. Because the head provided life and nourishment to the body. The head enables the body to live and grow, to flourish. We might look at these two meanings as life flows to me as the boss, or life flows from me as the source of life and, of, and nourishment. Like the headwaters of a river. You bless me, or I bless you. You serve me, or I serve you. Now, earlier in Ephesians, Paul refers to Jesus as the head of the church. And even though Jesus is clearly the head of the church by both definitions, Paul clearly means the second definition there. Jesus is the source of life and nourishment of the church. So it is likely that's what he means here. Especially when you take his overall teachings about marriage into consideration. All that to say, marriage is supposed to be the mutual submission of the husband to the wife and the wife to the husband where both are equally leveraging all of their authority, power, resource, and time for the benefit of the other person. For wives, verse 22 this means to leverage all of your authority, power, resources, and time on behalf of your husbands. As to the Lord. For the husband is the source of life and nourishment of, the, of his wife as Christ is the source of life and nourishment of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands and everything whether they follow Christ or not. Verse 25, for husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Now, by the way, for Paul's original audience, for wives to submit wouldn't have been the radical thought. It was just a cultural given. Duh. But this one, that husbands were to love their wives like Jesus loved the church, it's that idea that was radical. Women were property. Marriage didn't have anything to do with love at that time. 
He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, he will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body but feeds it, feeds and cares for it just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery. But it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now this is the ideal picture of marriage. This is the practical application of loving like Jesus in the context of marriage. This is how too many marriages have not played out throughout history. Even in the church, too many men, Christian or otherwise, have abused their supposed authority and used that power to make their women feel small. Don't do that. I've never met a person who grew up watching their parents survive that kind of marriage who wanted the same thing for themselves. That is in no way a marriage that honors Jesus. If you have to dishonor someone to get your way, you're in the wrong. Your kids need to see this played out the right way. Not only does it, is it giving them a picture of marriage that we'd all want our kids to have, but it is teaching them how to love like Jesus. They are watching you trying to figure out if Jesus really does make a difference in everyday living. You might be the only picture that they see that he does. They aren't going to see it on social media or in Hollywood. They won't be taught it at school. They might get an hour or two a week at youth group. But they live with you. And believe it or not, the health of your marriage is the foundation for your child's security. Especially in the younger years. But even into the teens and young adulthood, our kids need rock-solid Jesus kind of love marriages as the foundation for the rest of their development. In fact, the best parenting tool of all might be a healthy marriage. As Andy and Sandra Stanley write in their parenting book, your marriage influences how your children move through the world now. The emotional climate in your home affects your children's current and future well-being. Which means protecting the, your family means protecting your marriage first. Bringing us to the first of five ideas that will help us do just that. We want to model what protecting your marriage looks like for our kids. Number one, prioritize and invest. We want to prioritize and invest in our marriage. When our kids were little, we were given some good advice. We were, were reminded that we were a family before we had kids. And we would be a family after our kids were gone. And that for our kids to rightly develop, they needed to learn that they were a happy addition to the family, but they weren't the center of the family. 
That is, they, the, the family didn't revolve around them, although in those first months, it certainly seems like it. But as our kids became toddlers, one of the things I regularly did when I got home from work to model this for them was to greet and kiss and hug Didi before I gave them my attention. I wanted them to know that Didi comes first. And from a psychological and emotional perspective, they needed to know that Didi came first. We were fortunate that Didi's parents lived close enough and were willing to watch the kids whenever we needed them to. So we still went on dates and went to dinner with friends without kids. At the time, cell phones didn't rule the world like they do now. But if they did, we would have been unplugged except for emergencies. Part of helping your kids understand that they are, that they are not the center of the world is by not being at their beck and call for this, that, and whatever. Again, barring an emergency. It is okay not to take every phone call or respond immediately to every text. In fact, you shouldn't. It isn't healthy for you or them. The second idea to help protect your marriage, be a student of your spouse. Be a student of your spouse and act on what you learn. What makes your spouse feel loved? Do you even know? There are lots of resources out there today that can help you figure this out. One great one that has stood the test of time is Dr. Gary Chapman's book, The Five Love Languages. In a nutshell, the five love languages are receiving and or giving gifts, quality time, acts of service, words of affirmation, and physical touch. Everyone generally has a love language that they like to give love in and one they like to receive love in. They can be the same, but aren't necessarily. You might also consider them primary and secondary love languages. For example, I like to receive love in the language of physical touch. That's why I'm a hugger. But I like to give love as acts of service. Didi likes to receive love as quality time but gives, loves, gives love as words of affirmation. So when it comes to Valentine's Day, I don't give her flowers. That just isn't her thing. She'd rather we went out to dinner. That's also one reason why we like to travel together. She gets me alone and focused, not being pulled every which way by other priorities. So what makes your spouse feel loved? Figure it out. And just do it. Love her well. Love him well. The third idea to protect your marriage, be your spouse's loudest cheerleader. It's not your job to keep your spouse humble. Life has a, do a way of doing that without you. Everywhere you turn, whether you are a man or a woman, you get the message that you are not enough. So don't add to all of that noise. Be your spouse's loudest cheerleader. Didi is fantastic at this. She is the first person to tell someone how amazing her husband is. And she really means it because she believes it. I mean, I can't help it if she needs glasses. <laughs> That's not to say that I'm perfect or that she doesn't let me know when I have missed the mark, when it's appropriate. Love does that. It tells the truth, even when it's hard. And though I feel the same way about her that she does about me, I'm just not as good at tooting her horn. And I'm, I'm trying to do better, 
Remember that words of affirmation aren't my primary or secondary love language, so I have to work harder at putting what I feel into words. But don't stop at being your spouse's best cheerleader. Become their most passionate defender as well. Everyone needs to know that they have someone in their corner, whether they are in the room or not. Here at church, I take that role seriously with our pastors and staff. I think they are fantastic. I love having the privilege of working with each of them. And because love always believes the best, when someone comes to me with a complaint, I believe the best about my teammate until I'm proven wrong. And I know they do the same for me. And as we discovered last week, your words weigh a lot. Your encouragement means a lot. Your compliments mean a lot. If you are going to err, err on the side of overdoing it, not underdoing it. The force is trying to make us small. Don't need any help. Hebrews tells us to build one another up. Do that. It doesn't tell us to keep, keep the air out of our spouse's head. Next up, if you want to protect your marriage, practice showing gratitude. In the grind of daily life, it's easy to take your spouse for granted. When you're overwhelmed by your own day, it's easy to, to let your own negativity wash over them as they walk in the door. I have a friend who arguably leans on the side of being a workaholic. Not by choice, necessarily, but by the demands of his job, which are never-ending. When he walks in the door, is it better for him to hear, it's about time, or my hero just walked in the door? Like, which one is likelier to get him home earlier in the future? When I get home on Wednesdays and Dee says, I already got all the garbages taken out, I say thank you. I know she did it, not because it's my job or her job. We have never broken up our household chores that way. But she knows that if she doesn't, I will. And she wants to bless me by taking that small thing off my plate. When I clean up a mess that I didn't make in the kitchen, she says thank you, even if she didn't make the mess. Because she knows that I love her enough to take that off her plate. A simple thank you raises the odds that I'm going to do it again, or she's going to do it again. On the other hand, unexpressed gratitude communicates ingratitude, whether you mean it or not. For those of you who are not words of affirmation people like me, even you can say a simple thank you. Don't let those words get stuck behind your teeth and never leak out of your mouth. And the last idea to protect your marriage Harness the awe factor. Harness the awe factor. Now let me come around this one with a story. When COVID hit, like so many people, Didi's job moved from an office office to a home office. Well, not a, an office really, just a living room slash dining room desk and filing cabinets. And she loves it. Not the setup of, of, of the home office, but she loves that she gets to work from home. She loves the flexibility of being able to sleep in a little, spend time with Avery during the day when needed, and work on those odd hours when I'm also at work. And I love it for her. It's the best of both worlds. I noticed something after a while, though. When she worked at the office, she had co-workers to let off steam with when something went wonky. But at home, there was no one. 
until I walked in the door. I'd get a hey babe out and then she'd fill me in on her day, filling me in on all of those wonky problems. And though I'm great with being her sounding board when she needs it and I knew that her frustration wasn't aimed at me, I just needed a little breather before that began. And then we went through our brain science and spiritual growth series that we called Wired. In it, we talked about joy as being the look on someone's face when they are happy to see you. And it gave me words to describe what I was feeling when I went home. I was missing the joy on her face, and I'm sure she was missing the joy on my face because we skipped that and went to all the other stuff. So we changed that. On our trip to Orlando a few weeks ago, Dee Dee told me about a couple she's found on the internet who talk about marriage. They described a 15-second kissing challenge. 15 seconds a day kissing challenge. And we've been married for 30 years this coming December. We kiss, but we rarely kiss for 15 seconds anymore. So we decided to try it. Sorry, Lexi, you're probably watching online. I know this is gross for you. You'll survive. 15 seconds does wonders, people. The awe factor is that positive feeling you experience when your loved one gets home from work or walks in the room. Hopefully it's not, ah, that's not great. There they are again. It's worth fighting for. It's worth kissing for. It's worth a try. For you high schoolers who are dating, we're not talking to you with this one. For you, our message is no touchy. <laughs> Again, regardless of what your real is, now is the time to aim for the best ideal you can get in your situation. For those of you who are divorced, you could start with never talking badly about your ex in front of your kids. Never making them feel like they have to choose between you. They'll feel that way naturally, trust me, I know it, but don't pile it on. For those of you in challenging marriages, start with gratitude and work your way up from there. Your spouse probably does something that you can say thank you for. You are modeling marriage for your kids. What message do you really want to send? You are modeling biblical love in action. What message do you really want to send? As the Stanleys say, a healthy marriage is not a perfect marriage. It's not a relationship where conflict, struggle, and grief are absent. Rather, it's a relationship where mutual respect and mutual submission are the identified goals, even amid that conflict, struggle, or grief. It's a race to the back of the line. A you-first mentality that models humility, sacrifice, and selflessness. Which will preserve the relationship in the short term, giving your children security now, as well as giving you something to hold on when they leave you at empty nesters. After all, you were a family before they came on the scene. And you'll be a family when they've left to create families of their own. Let's pray. Father, in this room today, 
We have friends who are struggling in real situations that are challenging. Where the answers are not easy to get to. And Father, for those friends of mine in those situations right now, I pray that right now the Holy Spirit would just bring hope and peace and wisdom in those situations. Father, give us the energy and the knowledge to know how to work from our real to ideal. The best ideal that we can get in whatever the situation is that we are in. For people who surrender their lives and live wholeheartedly for Jesus, the Holy Spirit has a way of making up for our failures and filling them over with cracks of grace, filling over the cracks with grace. So we pray that that would happen in our marriages and relationships right now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Let me encourage you to download the discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. Working through those questions on your own or with others will help the truth of God's Word begin to shape your life as you grow to be like Jesus. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen, or you can call the church during the week. If you are just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. We count it a privilege to play a small part in God's perfect work in you today. The people who call Dayspring their home church make this ministry possible. Their faithful giving is proof of God's work in their lives, and they want to pay it forward so you can experience the same life-changing presence of Jesus. For those of you who would like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website, or text GIVE to the number on your screen, or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. Until we meet again, I am praying that God would give you opportunities to use your influence for the glory of His kingdom. And one more thing. Thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you connect with us. Thank you for rating us where that is appropriate. Even more. Thank you for sharing our services with your friends and family. If this service was a blessing to you, it'll probably be a blessing to someone else too. God uses you to plant seeds in other people's lives, so keep sowing.